In the early summer of 68, out in the woods, you set up a house in the trees with canvas stretched out on the treetops, cutlery grabbed from local junk shops. Then you get busted by the fuzz. And so, <laughs> and so obviously, as anyone would, you thought the answer to your all your woes would be to get a horse-drawn carriage to house all your stuff. You find a horse named Bess, a harness, and a van for 150 pounds. You kind of almost immediately run into Donovan at a house where you were living in a cupboard at the time. It turns out that Donovan had just bought some islands off the Isle of Skye in West Scotland. Donovan was taking a Land Rover. That sounds reasonable. But you decided, because I'm guessing you're the only real deal in that whole group of people, you decide to borrow 100 pounds from Donovan, perfect guy to borrow the money from, which you still owe him to this day, and do the trek by foot. Would you like for me or the show to pay Donovan back? Yes, I should pay him back one day. <laughs> Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. And in this episode, albeit with tons of deferential idolatry, we'll be turning our spray cans on Vashti Bunyan, along with our very special guest, Vashti Bunyan herself, who will be going through her entire catalog, every single release she's ever had a hand in writing, performing, and or guesting on, and rating every last one from zero to five stars. Look, if you know, then you know. But if you don't, then you ain't going nowhere, because right this second, finally, is your chance to stop embarrassing yourself around friends you give a shit about when the subject of Vashti Bunyan comes up. Tonight's guest is an English singer-songwriter who kicked off her career with a Stones-written pop song in the mid-1960s. She released her debut album, Just Another Diamond Day, five years later in 1970, after living homeless and traveling the UK countryside by horse in her quest for a utopian life, promised by an island paradise recently acquired by Donovan. Her record sold practically nothing, and Bunyan immediately put her career in mothballs for over three decades. By then, her once ludicrously obscure debut had acquired a large and devoted cult following. As if to make up for lost time, the second phase of her musical career has been jaw-droppingly productive. Vashti Bunyan is a legend. In the next hour, we'll learn exactly what happened on her lightning-quick ride on the fame train during the early part of her career, what she did to sabotage her Jimmy Page-written single, and a blow-by-blow account of her 18-month period of homeless wandering. Okay, first things first, you need to know just how seriously I take this craziness. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. The guest and I explore an artist or band's entire discography in a futile but valiant attempt to reach a higher truth, which often is cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. The show is heavily researched and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. We don't just cover albums, uh-uh. We do a searingly honest deep dive analysis of all EPs, singles, comp tracks, relevant solo work, and sometimes bootlegs and live stuff. Every release is slapped with an objectively accurate star rating between 0 and 5, 
which allows us all, the real reason we do this, the Tootsie Pop reward at the center of the rock and roll lolly, to come face to face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. Be sure to follow along with us chronologically as we go. The link to our legendary playlist is right there in the show notes. Coming up, we've got Deer Tick, Will Oldham, Bob Nastanovich, the association rating the entirety of their own output, and Anthony Fantano, the origin story. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. Do it! And away we go then with Vashti Bunyan as we jog right alongside Bess, Blue, Magog, and Robert powered solely by the inextinguishable spirit of youth and their heroically committed romantic notions, courtesy of one endlessly fascinating woman. Blink and you'll miss her, it girl, turned steadfast wanderer with such a soft, soft voice, but balls way, way bigger than yours and mine. Tonight's guest could have been a massive pop star back in the mid-60s, but instead she had to settle for an incredibly interesting existence and a life very well led. Her story is a mind-blowing one, and especially if you're not at all familiar with it, man, are you in for the ride of your life. Lads and ladies, I'm so honored to the core of my being to introduce tonight's guest that we just started the show without me recording any of it, and I don't <laughs> I don't mind anyone knowing that. Lads and ladies, Vashti Bunyan. Hello. Hi. Thank you so much. That was great. A lovely introduction. Thank you. That's literally the only time I've ever started a show and not recorded it. It's okay. <laughs> You know, the first time you were ever recognized was more recent to now than it is to the It Girl days, quote unquote. And I'm curious how it made you feel. Well, having spent so many years, well, three decades out in a musical wilderness where I, I had nothing to do with music at all. And then suddenly in the year 2000, uh, my old album from 1970 was reissued to a completely different audience. And well, it was extraordinary that, you know, I don't often get recognized at all. I don't get recognized. But there was one time I was on Venice Beach in Los Angeles and I bought something from a stand there and I gave over my card and the girl went, oh. <laughs> it's the first time that anybody had really gone, oh, are you her? It was a wonderful moment. It really was. Doesn't happen often, but that time really stays with me. It was great. You're one of the most famous people that ever was homeless. <laughs> I was homeless. I really was truly homeless. Yeah. Well, no, actually, that's not fair to say because truly, in the most connective possible way, the world was your home. Yeah. The outside world was my home. That's what I made it be. Yes. Reading your book, which, by the way, this just came out. It's your memoir. It's called Wayward, Just Another Life to Live. And I thought it was an incredible book written with very familiar kind of economy of style aesthetically that you bring to your music, which for us brokenhearted fanboys who have to <laughs> contend with, you know, are you actually retiring? But it's uh -huh. all part of a thing. Your life and your music Talk about inextricably interwoven. Completely, yes. How lucky am I for that to have happened to me, really, after so long without it. Yeah, writing the book was quite something because I had to go way, way, way back and try to remember things as vividly as I could. And in fact, my memories are pretty vivid of all that is in the book. I completely remembered myself. I haven't got any journals or diaries or anything like that. 
it was all in my head. And so writing the book, well, it was good. It was it was fun. It was, well, no, it wasn't fun. It was really hard work. <laughs> getting, getting to the editing stage anyway. But yes, I am a very lucky person, that's for sure. You make me feel like I'm wasting my life in the way that, you know, <laughs> oh. no, really, I mean, anything to do with notions of air conditioning or comfort, you know, I feel like you would make people question how they're living their lives. Well, that's what I was doing for myself. I was questioning how I was living my life. And the times that I spent outside on the road with very little shelter was not really long in my long life, but... It's something I refer to every day. You know, I walk into a room and I flick a light switch. And I remember, always remember, or, or I put on a fire or anything. You know, I look at my roof and think, I didn't have that. And although it wasn't for long, it informed the rest of my life, really, and made me feel lucky and made me understand how fortunate I had been throughout my young life and that I needed to learn what maybe other people went through or what previous generations went through. And I had to educate myself. That's what I did. 53 years later, when you walk into your house, do you feel trapped? No, no, I don't. I feel fortunate. I'm glad that I did that. I'm glad that I experienced being without shelter, but I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to go back and do it again. You don't so. think uh, yourself and Al have it within you to hit the road? Well, sometimes, sometimes the way that the world is now feels very similar to me, to the way the world felt then, which made me run away. Yeah. And so often I do feel like running away, trying to forget it all. But of course, you can't. I tried. <laughs> sure you can. <laughs> Your book is hysterically funny to me in that, you know, the typical music bio, there's about 130 to 150 boring pages that you have to wade through until you get to, you know, the ascendancy of fame. You deal with that almost as an annoyance, almost as a narrative <laughs> annoyance, like, let's get this out of the way real quick and then get back to my life. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Well, I didn't really want to dwell too much on my early life and my early experience of pop music and the music industry and the people within it that I came across. I didn't want to dwell too long on that. And in fact, the publisher, Lee Braxton at White Rabbit, he wanted me to just talk about the horse-drawn journey I made through the United Kingdom and leave it at that. But I wanted to explain the before and also to talk about the after. And so that's what I've tried to do. I think it gives a crucial context because without that setup, I mean, you know, internally what you're running away from, or at least you're giving some kind of hint, but not externally. Not at all. Yes, I had to describe how I was feeling and why I was feeling that way in order to take on such a crazy journey. <laughs> your, your book made me cry. Um, oh. The passage where your mom passes away and then you just simply print the lyrics to your song, Mother, that made me cry. It's interesting because, and I don't know if maybe I'm seeing too much of myself in you, but your life seems to be, and tell me if I'm way off base here, your life seems to be marked by twin streaks of courage and loss. 
Like you experience loss and you quote unquote overcompensate by doing the impossible, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, a couple moments in it, my heart broke. All the items that you left along the way, you know, mm -hmm. you're talking about how you don't have any diaries or whatnot. And, you know, I'm not somebody who just lives by their possessions necessarily, but that bonfire that you had where you I burned, know. I was, I felt myself in the book, yourself and your boyfriend at the time were trying to minimize your belongings so that mm -hmm. best your horse would not be over encumbered so you yeah. burned a bunch of stuff which was basically burning your youth exactly it was it was yes it was disappearing our young selves and all of my writing all of robert's writing that we had kept and yeah i can't believe we did that really because you know it doesn't weigh that much <laughs> But we wanted to make a stand for ourselves that that was our old life. This is our new life. Yeah. We don't need any of that. We're starting again with something else, something completely different, a different dream. And so, well, it made sense then. And it, it makes me sad now of all we lost. Sure. But on the other hand, I understand why we did it. I completely understand why we did it. Yeah, I, I get conceptually, you know, I remember when I was uh, 20 and I took a hammer and I smashed my watch. I wanted to be outside the constraints at the time. Right. <laughs> you know, oh. I had to kill the poor watch to get there. Poor watch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I discovered you through a file sharing service called Audio Galaxy. This is right after your record had been re-released. And yeah. anybody who crossed my path, I played them. Typically, there were two or three songs that I hammered them with, which was the title track of Diamond Day, I'd Like to Walk Around in Your Mind, and the awesome version of Winter is Blue. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You're um, it was like, especially because of the crackle on the walk around in your mind acetate, mm -hmm. it felt like an alternate universe and something I returned to over and over again around the time Fat Cat came into the picture. Right. Uh, yeah. So I'm curious because it's been such a zigzag path for you. So I'd like to put you on the spot here a little bit. Okay. <laughs> What is your legacy? Because you have one. As to my legacy, all I want really is for young people to not give up in the way that I gave up and to know that you have value and not dismiss yourself as I did. Did you really give up though? I really did give up. After, after just another Diamond Day, came out in 1970. It was completely dismissed as nursery rhymes. There were maybe two or three reviews, and one of them was really awful. And I decided then and there, I was not a musician. I was not in any way any kind of an artist, and I would not pick up my guitar again. And I didn't. I completely turned my back on music, not just mine, but everybody's. I turned away from music altogether. I never sang to my children. It was just something I, I didn't want in my life. I don't have many regrets in my life. I do regret that I didn't sing to my children. You mentioned it several <laughs> regret, times in the book. I regret that they didn't have music in their upbringing in the same way that they should have done. And what I would love is for young people to understand they don't have to compare themselves to other musicians or other people in any way. They have to keep going with what they do and not give up in the way that I did. I was lucky I got to be able to come back and take up where I left off. 
but I wouldn't recommend it to anybody to give up like that. The funny thing about how fate works out, though, is if you hadn't given up, you might not have the legacy that you have now because that giving up from the outside looking in, it doesn't seem like giving up. It seems like you reprioritized your life and mm -hmm. lived your life. So yeah. it feels like a necessary part of the story. Oh, certainly a necessary part of my story. But I would love for younger musicians to have more faith, I think, in themselves and that I didn't have any faith in myself. And yes, my own story has worked out great. And I, I don't regret those missing years in music because I lived a life. <laughs> I had all kinds of other things to do. As you will know, if you have a four-year-old child, <laughs> it's it kind of takes over. Yeah. I don't regret that, but I would love for other musicians to take out of that, as it isn't necessary to give up. It really isn't. It can be very inspiring to give up, though, when you realize, because there's points along the path that I've given up on things, and it comes back and hits you hard. If it's in your blood, there's no getting away from it. Here's a, a section I like to affectionately call the run-up, which gets us to the very first note of music that you laid down in as economical a fashion as hopefully your memoir and your music. The first thing that really jumped out at me in your memoir was meeting Cliff Richard and that palpable <laughs> misery <laughs> that you were able to take in in that moment. And I'm curious if that gave you pause before you sought the career and followed the creative muse that you did? No, it just made me feel terribly sorry for him. It was such a shock to have worshipped somebody on black and white TV and had no idea that I could ever meet somebody like that. But I did get the opportunity to meet him in a dressing room after a show. And he looked so unhappy, so miserable. He looked like he hated me. And at that moment, I thought, oh, my goodness, he must be very, very unhappy and be hating his life by the way he looks. And that was a big shock. I was 16. And to have somebody like that, wh whose music and, and songs, his his music, I, I loved it. And I loved his voice. I loved the way he sang. And just to have him standing there looking so unhappy, what has happened to him? What happens to these young people? You know, but no, it didn't put me off. I have a theory. You know, you know how we don't understand and can never really understand why we remember the things we do. Mm -hmm. I, I bet this is uh, here's my two cents that your brain retained that as a way to exemplify from the 1965 experiences that you had that it truly mm -hmm. wasn't meant to be and you were better off without that kind of success. Oh, yeah, you're absolutely right that that probably was in my mind that it's not it's not glorious to be a famous pop star. And although that was what I wanted, probably it helped me to leave it behind and to not get pulled into it, pulled into the glamour of it or whatever it <laughs> should have yeah. been. I think you're right. Yeah, it probably was in my mind. It had to have played a part. Uh, so you sure. went to uh, the Ruskin School of Drawing and Fine Art in Oxford. I did not know this, but you became friends with Michael Palin and, and uh, Terry Jones from the Python. And then yes. crazily, you were expelled, which you seem far from the kind of person who'd be expelled from college, but there you have it. And yeah. what I would portend that your flashpoint moment of creative epiphany was, if you'll excuse my language, your holy shit moment, <laughs> is your brother laughing at you. Yes, absolutely. He was tasked with giving you a, a good talking to from your parents. I'd been thrown out of art school because I was more interested in writing songs and working with the theatre groups and stuff than I was in drawing and painting. 
And so, yeah, my brother was brought in to give me a talking to. What was I going to do with my life? How was I going to earn a living? And I said, I want to be a pop singer. And he laughed and laughed and laughed. He said, but what do you really want to do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, to be a pop singer. <laughs> and really, that really determined me. And so off I went to try and find my way in the pop music world. If he hadn't laughed, I might not have been quite so determined. And he, of course, wound up being probably your biggest champion ever. He was. He really yeah. was. And I was so missing. He understood what I was trying to do with quieter songs, with quieter accompaniment and, um, yeah, little love songs. <laughs> but with the voice that I had, he understood what I wanted to do with my voice. And he understood I was really a choir boy. <laughs> And and he loved that about my voice. And so, yeah, he he was. He became my greatest advocate, that's for sure. Not immediately, because at first you had to stamp and charge up and down Denmark Street to try Mm -hmm. to apply your trade. But when that didn't bear immediate fruit, you stepped into a studio in October of 1964 and created a demo tape, which leads to phase one, quasi star- <laughs> quasi-stardom and the Vision Quest slate cleaner, 1963 to 1969. <laughs> okay, so October 64, you walk into a studio, you record 12 songs, one after the other, voice and guitar, and as you put it, with my very English tones announcing each title as I went. Yeah. And hadn't heard the tape since 1964 after you had discovered it in the 2000s. It came out in 2007 on yeah. these Some Things Just Stick in Your Mind two-disc compilation. When you reheard that, did you recognize the girl who was emanating through those speakers on that day? I think it was the little English voice between each song that made me laugh because I've lived in Scotland Scotland now for <laughs> for an awful long time, so I don't sound nearly as English as I did on that tape. But that tape, I didn't know what had happened to it, but my brother must have kept it. And he sent it to me ages ago before he died with a whole lot of other reel-to-reel tapes. And I borrowed a, a tape player and went through all the box of tapes. And when I found that one, I realized, wow, that's the one I made in 1964. Oh my. And I'd not heard, I'd forgotten some of the songs, but to hear them again, even the embarrassing ones. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's nothing embarrassing. Either. I I have likened it to finding teenage poetry in the back of a drawer. It felt like that hearing it all again because I guess I started writing those songs when I was about eighteen and recorded them for that tape when I was just twenty. And I'm actually really proud of some of those songs. What's your favorite? I'll have to go with "Don't Believe What They Say." Oh, and, and that's your, that's your very first song ever. The first song was "I Don't Know What Love Is." That was the first one I ever wrote, followed by Don't Believe What They Say. And I think my favorite one is I love you now. I don't say I'll love you forever. I don't say I love you forever, but I know that I love you now. And for somebody so young to understand that, I'm really quite proud of her. Not just that you were young, but the world had not been regaled by lyrics like this. No, and uh, yeah, they went completely unnoticed. I think it's really solid. I mean, I think this didn't have to just be a second disc in a compilation package. This is a standalone record and is a crucial part of understanding your story. It feels silly to be rating this stuff, but uh, I'm going to go with three and a quarter stars. (laughs) For for the the whole tape? Yeah, for the whole 
roll tape. <laughs> oh, yes, of course, I've forgotten about the starring. <laughs> well, I'm going to go with four. <laughs> nice, nice. I think that's fair. So you're, what, 18 years old? In, yeah. Okay, so you already have, as far as I'm concerned, an album under your belt. You're 19 years old. You go with your mom to a party thrown by family, friends, where you sang How Do I Know. From you singing that song at that party to yeah. you standing in front of Andrew Luke Oldham, what's the length of time that passes? Two days. Two days. Back then, it was like things could happen like that. Uh, oh, hell yes, really. And you could find people. And yeah, it wasn't extraordinary to me, you know, that the agent who was at that party of my mother's friends and who heard me Monty singing, Mackey. Monty Mackey, a Mayfair agent. And she knew Andrew Lugoldum and she put us together. And oh, my goodness, it, it didn't seem extraordinary to me. OK, so he's the manager of the Rolling Stones and I love the Rolling Stones and they were already really huge. But it didn't seem extraordinary to me that I was sitting in a room playing my songs to Andrew Lugoldum, who didn't say a word, and neither did right. I. <laughs> <laughs> but then I was summoned to his office, and he handed me an acetate of the Stone song, Some Things Just Stick in Your Mind. And he says, well, this is to be your first single. Um <laughs> No. <laughs> and as you say, with such great economy again, I set out on a path I had not planned, but it surely had its moments. <laughs> yes, it really did. And, you know, I was just swept along in it completely, as were a lot of young musicians, a lot of young singers. But I think the difference for me was that I was writing my own songs. And there weren't many girl singers at that time who were writing their own songs. I think there probably were, but not many who had come to be known. It was mostly girls wear men in beautiful ball gowns and their hair down and everything, singing somebody else's songs. But for me, what I wanted to do was record my own songs. And so when Andrew handed me a Stone song, I said, I'm, um, <laughs> I want to do mine. But yes, I got swept along. I got swept along. And it was the most incredible experience to be amongst these young people who were taking the reins of the music industry and running with it, leaving the old guys behind. It was just so great. And again, as you say, I was quietly <laughs> delighting in being a small part of the big fuck you. Yes. <laughs> oh, dear. Yes, I was at a book reading the other day, and it just happened to be in a church, and I was reading out that bit. <laughs> oh. <laughs> There's something about you using cuss words that make them seem 20 times more powerful than they are. Uh, you also, was it your choice to go with Vashti instead of Vashti Bunyan? No. It wasn't. But again, I didn't fight it. I think because probably throughout my young life and certainly through school life, Bunyan had been such a, a burden, really. And we sat around and, and started to try to find another word that would go with Vashti. And, you know, Vashti bird, Vashti this, Vashti sky, Vashti whatever. Nothing worked. And so they just decided it would just be Vashti. And I kind of regret it in a way. You know, I, I, I don't mind what I'm called now. But <laughs> back then, Bunyan seemed to be such a loaded word, loaded name, I mean. This single is incredibly interesting to me because all the information that you need to know that you're a true artist is really just to flip the record over. If you listen to I Want to Be Alone, uh, especially in the context of the absolute Phil Spector-esque circus that is the A-side, uh, <laughs> and you're totally right, by the way, you on your debut single on the B-side, I'd have written a song that's better than a Mick Jagger Keith Richards song. Well, 
I thought so at the time. And when I said so on a radio program that I thought I wrote better songs than Mick Jagger and Keith Richard, I meant for me. I didn't mean that I wrote better songs than them. But Andrew had promised that I could put one of my own songs on the B-side. And I loved every moment of recording that one and even arranging it with David Whitaker. We did that together. Do you appreciate that A-side now for what it is? I mean, ever since this first single, I feel like you've been on a quest for some sort of hushed intimacy. So to be coming from this insane wall of sound thing, do you have you garnered some kind of appreciation for what it is? For the something's just stick in your mind one. Yeah, because it's so different. Yeah, I loved being in amongst all of those people. You know, there was big Jim Sullivan, there was uh, Jimmy Page. They were session musicians and Nicky Hopkins on piano. And it was just incredible to be amongst all these young people. There were so many instruments, they couldn't all fit in the studio at the same time. But what an incredible thing to go through, you know? And then I think it was probably later on in the day that we did I Want to Be Alone. And that was just with a few people. Yeah, I really loved it. I loved all of that. But I never spoke a word to anybody. I was so shy that I didn't speak to anybody. I just let it all happen around me. But then the memories of it are so clear. It was an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. And since Andrew has actually said that he thought that the B-side was better. It's unquestionably better. But the coolest (laughs) thing about it is that it almost acts as, you know, there's concept albums, but this is almost a concept single, not just musically, but lyrically. The B-side almost unintentionally works as a dialogue denouncing the clatter of the (laughs) A-side. Right? That's right. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but yes, you're right. By the time you get to the B side, it's like, everyone, please get out of here leave me alone. You give me a headache. <laughs> right. Absolutely. It's so clear right from the outset, right from that first single, that you're a writer first and foremost. But of course, then it's your voice. You know, you can take a thousand instruments and try to bury that really, really soft voice of yours. But the magic of your voice to me is that no matter how softly you sing, no matter where you're put in the mix, you're always floating above everything and everybody. Oh, well, that's that's very kind and nice to hear. Thank you. Yeah, I think when I listen to something's just stick in your mind now, I think they made me sing with an American accent, and I didn't have an American accent. <laughs> but all pop music was sung as if we were American. It's really extraordinary for me to realize that now. But I think for the B side, I more or less sang as myself, which I enjoyed, of course. I Want to Be Alone is one of my favorites of yours. Thank you. The A side I like, but more as a period relic and a sort of <laughs> like, a, like a whoa, mind blowing counterpoint to everything else you've ever done. <laughs> Yeah, it was Andrew, it was Andrew Louis Golden and his Phil Spector time. And he was an incredible producer. I'm really lucky, really lucky. And also, we didn't speak to each other for a good 30 years, but in more recent times, we've had some really nice conversations. So that's good too. What do you give this single? Oh, yeah, I keep forgetting about the stars. <laughs> <laughs> this is the nerdy fanboy side of things, is the star rating. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, I would never have consented to doing the star rating thing with you if I wasn't a fawning adulator of your music. Oh, well, I, I I think it's fun. Actually, I did write it down somewhere. I had put five, 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 five. <laughs> 
deserving. I'll give it four and a half stars, mainly because of the. If side A was one of your songs, it would have been a five. Okay. Well, I, I'll give. Actually, I, I think because of the time it was in my life and what it has meant to me to have been able to do that, even if it didn't work at the time, I have to give it five for both because they both mean so much to me. No arguments here. Okay. Uh, so then this next little chunk of time, your time riding the fame train was six weeks of appearances up and down the country for local TV stations. Thank your lucky stars, Shindig, a whole slew of radio and press interviews. And then, like you say, suddenly nothing. No. Pleading with the phone to ring, it didn't. <laughs> And that was that, it. That was it. That's it. Nothing. Nothing. You look nothing. Back on that time, with any kind of clarity, it was a shock. And I think that so many young people at the time, so many young singers and musicians at the time, went through the same kind of thing, and they probably still do. That huge push and so much stuff to do, really busy for all six weeks. There was so much to do, so many people to meet, to talk to, and have interviews, and then TV up and down the country, and then. Nothing. And I think the shock of that leads to some really difficult mental leaps, you know, to understand that that's the way it goes. You are something for a few weeks and then you're nothing unless you do something else and, and bring it back, bring the attention back again. But I didn't. I didn't have anything else to do. I struggle with depression. I have for, for many years. I, did, I almost don't know anybody who doesn't. You know, there's a moment in your book where all of a sudden it feels like the carpet's been pulled out from under you and there's a darkness. You know, the diamond days are up around the corner, but they're not quite here yet. Yeah. Is this experience, is that what created this yes. in you before? Well, I did leave Andrew after that. I met a Canadian producer who made a lovely single called Train Song. Train Song was in 1966, a year after yeah. Something's Just Taken Your Mind. It was Train Song, the single, and that didn't go anywhere at all. Not a thing. And I went back to Andrew and I recorded back with him two more songs, one of which was Winter is Blue. Let's start first with the acetate, because this oh, is one of my absolute right, favorite yeah. things you've ever done. The Winter is Blue acetate demo is absolutely the sweet spot for me. It's oh. almost unbearably gentle and moving. And man, am I with you as far as wishing that this had been released instead of what was attempted and abandoned later. It didn't need all of the embellishments. It really didn't. It really really, really didn't. This is yeah. an easy five stars for me. The acetate was kept by my friend Jenny Lewis, who I'd been at art school with in Oxford. I had a whole lot of other ones that got really damaged, but she kept that one. And when we came to making Diamond Day, we used her acetate because it was almost perfect. Yeah. Thank goodness. Thank you, Jenny, for keeping it, because there isn't any other recording apart from that acetate of that song being sung that way with Mike Crowther on guitar. And when I listened to it, now five <laughs> anything less than that i would have to question where you're coming from <laughs> well I, I think maybe the the line in it if my heart freezes i won't feel the breaking is probably mm. the best line i ever wrote so it has to be a five <laughs> that's a great line and i tried to reconstruct the chronology as best i could i believe the next thing is your brother's four songs off of a 1966 tape that john had your brother uh girl mm -hmm. song in winter if in winter 100 lovers don't believe and then the jenny lewis collaboration 17 pink sugar elephants which yeah. you can't say without smiling from ear to ear um, <laughs> But this, to me, I know your least favorite four-letter word that starts with an F. 
this is the most folky to me, to my ears, the thing that probably skirts closest to the stuff that you seem to hate so much, the folk. <laughs> Why do you hate folk music so much? Why do I hate being called a folk singer? Because to me, that means traditional, old, old, old music. And I never sang that kind of music if I could help it. But songs like If in Winter and Girls' Song in Winter, the words of those were written by somebody else, and I just put it to music. But the person who wrote the words, Alistair Clare, he introduced me to Cecil Sharp House, which is where a whole lot of folk music is kept. And I think because of getting to know him and also really loving his poetry and putting it to music, it suited that kind of folky treatment. And I think those two songs are definitely quite folky. The tunes are quite folky. I'm surprised I, you even released it knowing how much you hate. But these are probably the most traditionally minded folk songs you've ever done. Yes, they were. And I think it was with respect to Alistair for the kind of music that he liked and that he was writing himself. And I took his words and put it to my kind of music, but really very folky tinged. But, you know, there's not many of them that are that folky. And let's not go to Diamond Day just yet. <laughs> no, no, no. Back in that time, I was still trying so much to get my little songs, my small love songs into mainstream pop. That's what I wanted more than anything, was to introduce quieter music, more thoughtful music, more thoughtful lyrics into the mainstream. And I never made it. I never succeeded doing that. But that was what I wanted at the time. You got a Diamond Day phone commercial. I don't know. What... <laughs> <laughs> well, that I doesn't know. count at all. Imagine being told all your young life that you're not commercial. And then one day... <laughs> Mobile. For choosing to do what you did, you owe the world nothing as far as that's concerned. Well, it was the most incredible vindication. And although I got into a lot of trouble from people who had loved Diamond Day for some for its anti-commercial stance, really, for me, it was just wonderful because it was a commercial. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, exciting. How great could that be for me? So, yes, I didn't take it on board too much, the people who were disappointed in me, but it actually paid for my youngest son to go to college in America. So that's <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> so for your brother's tape, if I have to give anything the label of my least favorite thing you've done, it would be this, but I still give it three stars. I still think it's okay. good, but I feel like it leans in that folk direction in a way that makes it slightly less distinctive than your other stuff. Yeah, I think so. I think you're probably right. I still love it because it was my brother. <laughs> And he, he was the one, he loved new technology and he loved trying to record me. You know, you can hear all kinds of terrible mistakes in it, but it's still wonderful to me. And it, I think, okay, taking out the folky stuff, four and a half. Four and a okay. half? Okay. I like your outlook <laughs> on your music. You should be as effusive as you are, in my personal opinion. All right. So June 1966, you're back as Vashti, train song, back with love song. An incredible single. This is, of course, Peter Snell, the producer who loved your new material and bought you out of your contract with Andrew. It's just mm -hmm. a session guitarist, a cellist, a double bassist. Yeah. Seemingly, at least to my ears, a reaction against the once-in-a-lifetime kitchen sink production of some things. Kitchen sink? <laughs> <With that? laughs> 
Oh, do you mean he brought everything, including the kitchen sink? Yeah. Okay. Yes. All right. Yeah, yeah. 100% <laughs> kitchen sink. I bet if Phil Spector heard it, he'd be like, whoa, there's too many instruments on this. <laughs> <laughs> Three trombones. <laughs> Is that what it was, really? Yeah, as much as everything else, you know. I actually like the flip better than the A side. I think Love Song, I would, I would have reversed the sides. Really? Would you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe it would have worked because Train Song didn't work. It worked 35 years later, but... <laughs> <laughs> is love song the song written there was some song written by jimmy page wasn't there no i never never did because andrew had promised that my second single would be one of my own songs and then i got brought into the studio to sing something written by jimmy page i mean he was a session musician then right. and i didn't like the song and i sang it really really badly and i was sulking right. because the promise had been to be able to do my own songs and so here i was given somebody else's song again and i sang it really badly and i don't think there's any copy of it anywhere thank goodness <laughs> oh, okay that's not existing it didn't exist okay it i hope i hope i hope somebody doesn't come up with it <laughs> <laughs> uh this one i give four and a quarter stars i think it's a, a great single good oh that, that's good i'm very fond of it yeah are you giving four and a half stars to love song or or just the two songs the whole single yeah, the whole single. yeah. I think I would agree with that. The only beef I have with Train Song is that there was a third verse and I didn't record the third verse for the uh, single and I don't know why I didn't. Sounds like maybe a re-recording could take you out of retirement. <laughs> I have thought of re-recording all those early ones, but we'll see. Yes. Okay, good. That's great news. All right. 1967, the unreleased immediate single of Winter is Blue. So uh, Andrew chose the song and asked Art Greenside to arrange it for an enormous orchestra with an yeah. operatic diva singing a long note in the middle. <laughs> this is something that kind of made me prick up my eyes, was Art changing a bit of the vocal melody, which a year earlier would have had you objecting but you were beginning to lose the huge confidence in your songs that you'd started off with and you let them do it so yeah. is it around this time where you're kind of slump shouldered about the whole experience of this is not happening it's not working it was it around here no i think i went along with it for winter is blue i thought you know well this is an andrew production and this is what it's going to be i wasn't too keen on the operatic diva in the middle <laughs> But, and also the beginning, because I'd worked out a really good arrangement with Mike Crowther and, well, Art Greenslate. He had really made it very harsh. It was supposed to be soft, and I'd asked them to make it softer, and they didn't. And so I never said another word. And so that's the way that it came out. And I went along with it and I thought, well, that's going to be a single and that's okay. Yeah, but it never came out. Right. And I was really, really upset again that, you know, there was this great build up to this great song and a huge amount of people in the studio and then, and then nothing. I still think it's really good, but that early version... It really is perfect. Nothing would have improved on that. So, uh -huh. you know, yeah. I'm kind of rating the song when I say this, not the actual performance, but I give it four and three quarters stars. I think Winter is Blue is a tremendous piece of work. Thank you. Yes, I, I 
It's a good song, <laughs> a very heartfelt song. And the very thought of Andrew putting out the simple version, you know, it would never have happened. No. And so the song would never have been heard. would have had like PJ Proby screaming in the background, <laughs> and, you know, the whole cast and crew of Immediate. Oh, no, it, it would not have happened. But the song to be there at all is good. And of course, it was featured in the movie in Tonight Let's All Make Love in London. Yes, it was. Yeah, that was another experience. My goodness. It all went straight over my head, really. The filming of that session. And I can't remember if it was that session where P.P. Arnold was there and the small faces and other immediate people. And it was just incredible to be with these people. And again, I never said a word. <laughs> <laughs> I hope from 1968 to 1970, you were talking on the road, at least. Mm, no. No? Okay. <laughs> so after that is a total one-off. In 67, again, coldest night of the year, another in a long line of unreleased immediate singles. This one credited to Twice As Much and Vashti. You were going for sort of a Beach Boys thing, and you yeah. really hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's a one-off that's really amazing on its own, not at yeah. all indicative of any other song in your entire career i think it should have been a hit for sure at the very well, least been released for crying out loud if only if only they had released it i'm sure it would have worked it's a great christmas kind of song and i loved working that out with the twice as much guys it's a man brill building song and andrew wanted us to put a beach boys feel to it and i think that's exactly what we did you know the band that had recorded it but never released it like totems no i never actually heard that one i wouldn't know where to find it this is five stars all the way for me it's a one-off but in its own way it's a it's a much more solid stable one-off than some things just stick in your mind i absolutely love it i really love it i love the interplay between us all and how carefully we've worked it out oh, wow in andrew's park lane hotel <laughs> <laughs> just sat there and you know with all this incredible stuff going on all around us and we just sat there and worked it out and went into the studio and i think we really got it and i'm so proud of it you know i wish i were in touch with the other guys but i'm not sadly yeah. we were a little while ago but not now but i think we did it really well yes five we did. It's, it's it's awesome and then oldham put you in a room with a record player a piano and three albums tim harden the mamas and the papas and pet sounds my second favorite album of all time and told you to write something in between all of them instead you bolted from the office stole the records and went up writing <laughs> and wind up writing one of the greatest songs of all time. There's mm -hmm. no question about it, because sometimes a song will go beyond just being a song and will capture a mood that is not captured by any other song or work of art in existence. That, to me, is I'd like to walk around in your mind. I don't know why, I don't know how a song like this could slip through the cracks and not be released. That makes yeah. no sense to me at all. It's probably my favorite song of yours. Um, really? Yeah. It's perfect. Why yeah. how did they have held this one back? I don't get that. I suppose it was at a time at Immediate Records where everything was moving so fast and so many people coming through. And, and then I was about to give all my songs away to another girl singer because I was just desperate about it all. But Tony Calder, Andrew's partner, wanted to hear them. And he said, no, you can't do this. Let's get somebody else in to produce it. Oh, God, what was his name? <laughs> I can't remember. 
it's in the book. You got to buy the book. You can't get it all here on the podcast. Got to <laughs> buy the book. <laughs> we recorded. I'd like to walk around in your mind, and I thought this is it. This is. All I've ever wanted to sound like is just a great arrangement, lovely production. We took it to Andrew. He said it needs strings, and we tried it with strings, and it really didn't work. I had an acetate demo of our first session. That was the one that I really loved and wanted to keep it like that. But Andrew thought it needed violins, and so we tried it with violins, and it didn't work at all. And so took it back to Andrew, and he thought, "Well, this doesn't work." And so it was shelved. The whole thing was shelved. That was the one that broke my heart and just. Yeah. Plunged me into just a maelstrom of of despair. At this point, I mean, how many unreleased projects could one person take? It was almost like that they were doing it on purpose. It's, how many songs can you you know put a thousand <laughs> instruments on and then shelve? Yes, I know, I know. And it, it was always you know it was a few months between each one that I would despair, and then I would get the courage back again to try it all again. And certainly with I'd like to. Watch Around in your mind, I really thought that that was going to be the one that would break through, and then it it's wasn't a masterpiece.、Good. Probably cool for you that Lush recorded it. Yes, that was an incredible surprise. Yeah, I, I didn't know about it at all because what had happened was that I had that acetate demo and I gave it to somebody up in the Outer Hebrides. Somebody who had been very kind to us, Iris. Iris, I gave it to Iris. Never heard it again until. <laughs> It was pointed out to me that it was on a compilation. Yeah, in pop, 1990. Yeah, pop psych obscurities put、yeah. together by someone called Phil Smee, and there it was. And I hadn't heard it in all of those years, and that's why we put it on as a bonus track on the CD for Diamond Day. But it was a miracle that that survived at all, really, and that Phil Smee. I don't know how he managed to get it. I don't know how it got from the Outer Hebrides down to the South of England, but thank. Goodness, it survived because I just love it. I'm very proud of it as a song written by somebody so young about somebody who was totally, obviously, commitment phobic. You would call him now. Is this about Robert? <laughs> Not the Robert that I travelled with,、okay. no. But Robert Hewson, my boyfriend when、right. I was in Oxford at the art school. It's about him. Well, Winter is Blue was about him too. Quite a lot of the songs were about him, and、uh, he's quite mortified about that now. <laughs> Oh, you know, I'm really curious. I'm guessing that Robert Lewis has read the book. Well, I don't know.、You're, are you not on talking terms? Or? I, I sent it to him, but he hasn't said one way or the other what he feels about it. It's really interesting to me this notion that you guys were these really, really romantic. I, I don't mean love romantic. I mean like. Cosmically romantic,、um, yes. and now you write about him with absolute stark clarity. The way that you look back on these two starry-eyed kids is you suffer no fools. I mean, you're really telling it as it is, and I'm curious if he felt deflated reading it. If he did, yeah,、mm, I wonder. I don't know. You know, it's difficult to tell. Somebody else's story with your own story, and this is what I've done. It's kind of like I've stolen his story to put in with my story, and I didn't know how he would feel about that. I didn't consult him on the way. I wanted it to be my memories. You're also very fair. You know, you do say this is his journey. He's、mm-hmm. the author of the trip. It's not character assassination. That's what I didn't want, and I said that. 
to the publisher. I said, you know, I do not want this to be any kind of a hatchet job. I want it to be fair and truthful from my point of view. It might not be great for him. But on the other hand, the book had to go through the lawyers. <laughs> and wow. the lawyers said she wasn't unsympathetic towards him. And so, you know, I thought, oh, well, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, and also anybody who knows him and knows me from back then has said, you know, that it's, it's quite gentle, really, compared to what it could have been. It's my kid's legacy, and I guess we'll probably get to speak about it sometime. But just now, no. You sound wildly head over heels in love with Al, which is fantastic. <laughs> but I feel I feel the pain of you know what you went through with Robert, probably because when you go through an experience like what you went through from 68 to 70, I know with my wife, you know, we went through so many deaths together, amongst other things, that I can't imagine not being with her because we have all that experience. Right. So the travels must have sort of made it a much more difficult thing to part with. Oh, yeah. And it, it kept us together for 22 years, more or less, yeah. because of that shared experience, because, you know, there was nobody else we could share it with. It right. had happened to the two of us. And so, yes, it was very hard yeah. to come away from that. But then I had a completely different love in Al. Yeah. So completely different and absolutely wonderful. And so that is another part of my life that I've written about in the book, but my life now, I'm extremely fortunate and very happy. You are, you know, just judging from your music and your memoir, entirely deserving of somebody as, as doting as Al seems to be. Oh. <laughs> Really? I'll tell him you said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so post, I'd like to walk around in your mind. You know, this is where reading your memoir as a fan of yours is crucial because I'd like to walk around in your mind when I've heard it. It doesn't portend any kind of darkness. It's super floaty. It's like on a cloud. But really, after I'd like to walk around in your mind didn't happen, this is a very hard period for you. You become an animal nurse. You go on medication. You become very depressed and disconnected from the beauty and wonder of the world, right? Absolutely. Hey, lads and ladies, Dave Gebro here. I abandoned my career and moved my family 3,000 miles to be able to focus exclusively on discography. And so if you're like me and enough is just never enough, then please visit patreon.com slash discography and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Discography is an entirely listener-supported show, and it's also intended to be a three-times-a-week music deep-dive experience. So do us both a favor and consider giving it a shot. Trust me, I'm working hard for the money, so hard for it, honey. There's the main show on Friday, a Monday wildcard episode, which is either a soul-bearing interview with that week's special guest, or an offshoot show like Queasy Listening and Rock Cousteau. And then on Wednesdays, there's the humdinger of them all, Discography's The Private Press with Paul Major. You got nothing to lose. If you don't dig it after a month, you're refunded. No questions asked. Once again, that's patreon.com slash discography. The way that I've described it in the book, I didn't want to use words like depression or post-traumatic stress or any of those words that are current now. Back then, I would not have known that I was going through a depression, that I was going through post-trauma, those words wouldn't have been in my head. And so I didn't use them in the book. But I tried to describe how it felt to have this abyss open up underneath me and it being so sudden. And, and of course, it, it was a panic attack, but I would never have called it that. 
and I don't in the book. I just try to describe what happened. And that's another thing is that, you know, where it's crucial to read this book. My romantic notion of your romantic notions now for the last 20 years have been oh, let's take a trip. And I didn't realize it was born out of a desperate darkness, mm -hmm. which really, I mean, you're just trying to make sense of the bric-a-brac in here. Of course. <laughs> I didn't know that. And it adds quite a lot, especially to Diamond Day, because we'll get to it. But they now strike me, having ingested your work, as being wish fulfillment nursery rhymes. If only the world was this simple, but it's not. Absolutely. You're completely right. Yes. But, uh, yeah, that's where you need the book to really understand the work. So the the one song that I couldn't quite place the chronology is the last one from this period, Song of a Wish Wanderer, the acetate demo. Was yeah. this from 68? It was from the same lot that Winter is Blue. I made six and I've only got Wish Wanderer. We sent it off to be cleaned up, but it didn't get terribly well cleaned up. So there's a lot of clicks and bashes on it. Song of a Wish Wanderer. I think it was me being stuck in London, either living with my parents or with my brother or going back to my parents or going back to my brother, back and forth. And what I really wanted was to be out in the world and to wander. And so it was the song of a wish wanderer. And I was trying to make this romantic vision of a person who didn't have a home, didn't need to have a person, didn't need anything really, but just to be free. And it was a fantasy, complete fantasy. It was soon to become a reality. Is this the last song or is I'd Like to Walk Around in Your Mind the last song before the trip? I think they were all on the same bunch of acetates because I've got it. I've got Song of Wish Wanderer on an acetate. So, yes, it was the same bunch that I took to Tony Calder and he chose I'd Like to Walk Around in Your Mind. Which brings us, by the way, because, you know, this is the fantasy-based ruminations of a young lady, which are soon to become very much a reality. So, phase two, a diamond day that lasts 32 long years, 1968 to 2000. All right, so I'm going to give a sort of Cliff Notes rundown of what happens between here and the recording of Diamond Day, because people have to read the book, and this is, you know, mainly what the book is. Just jump in and say, nope, that's not what happened if, uh, if I get anything wrong, okay? Okay, all right. okay. Then you renounce it all. To hell with the unreleased singles, to hell with immediate. In the early summer of 68, you meet Robert Lewis out in the woods. You set up a house in the trees with canvas stretched out on the treetops cutlery grabbed from local junk shops you write glowworms glowworms mm -hmm. is the first non-fantasy based song about the wandering life then you get busted by the fuzz and so obviously <laughs> and so obviously as anyone would you thought the answer to your all your woes would be to get a horse-drawn carriage to house all your stuff you find a horse named bess a harness and a van for 150 pounds too bad you had no money but thank god the universe very much had and still has your back at this time because you kind of almost immediately run into Donovan at a house where you were living in a cupboard at the time. It turns <laughs> out that Donovan had just bought some islands off the Isle of Skye in West Scotland. And what you wrote was, I was swept up into this great gale of ideas for a future of like-minded people, painters, musicians, writers, all free to make their artistry their lives. Donovan was taking a Land Rover. That sounds reasonable. 
but you decided because I'm guessing you're the only real deal in that whole group of people. You decide to borrow a hundred pounds from Donovan, perfect guy to borrow the money from, which you still owe him to this day, and do the trek by foot. Now let's talk about this for a second. Would you like for me or the show to pay Donovan back? <laughs> well, the thing is that I did pay him back. He never got it. He never got it. It was a postal order that was sent by my uncle, who was the executor of my aunt's will, who had left me a hundred pounds. And I couldn't get it in time to buy the horse. Donovan lent us the money. My uncle sent a postal order to Donovan's house, but Donovan was away touring in America. Somebody else cashed the postal order. Yeah, it was a freeloading hippie. It was probably a freeloading hippie at his house. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I said in the book, I still owe him a hundred pounds, my daughter said, no, you don't. The person who stole the money still owes him a hundred pounds. So, but yes, I should pay him back one day. What is the American equivalent of a hundred? Uh, probably about $115, something like that. I believe that that inner tumbleweed, as you call it in your memoir, uh, is simply due to this still outstanding debt in your ledger. So if there's uh -huh. anything I could do to help you pay him back. <laughs> 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 yes, I don't know where he is just now. I think he's still living in Ireland. And I have seen him a few times since in the last yeah. years. All right, so back to your story. So on July 3rd, 1968, Robert haggled Bess's previous owner down to 135 pounds and off you went. We sold the grandfather clock for 35 pounds to top up the 100 pounds. We had 135 pounds. And then there's a, a great line that you write, I'm going to learn how to make my own kind of life away from the madness of war and injustice, even if the madness is in me and the war has always been playing out of my head it's a great line and then on page 78 of your book yeah i was doing all that i could at the time in the days and the miles going by but it took my attention away from my troubled self and onto the problems of looking after a horse who needed water and food a fire that needed wood a wagon that needed a place to park every night a dog intent on getting himself run over and an infuriating and determined character for a partner <laughs> um, <laughs> i can see how you know, distracting yourself is the best way to get on with things right um yeah it worked and then that moment where robert said to you which in a way i'm almost thankful that he said it because diamond day possibly wouldn't have been created otherwise why don't you stop writing those miserable little love songs and write about what is around you now of course the way that he said it even if you are paraphrasing him could have been more eloquent but your way of creating these narrative type songs were really amazing and unique in your own way. And Timothy Grubb was the first, right? That was like yes. that? Yeah. Well, Glowworms had been the first, but then that was a love song. So I had to stop writing them once. <laughs> but then you had, you had a Christmas 1968 tour that sounded really harrowing, tiny places, no one listening to or hearing you. But then at the very least, you had Daryl Adams tell you, don't hide your light. Yeah, he was one of the rambling boys. And those four words, wound up being very impactful upon you. I think you were ready to hear that, right? I was ready. I was ready because, yes, I'd been singing in a bar where nobody was listening. You know, it was loud and I burst into tears and ran off the stage. But the barman was so nice. He was so kind. And he said, well, there's this musician living upstairs. And it was Daryl Adams. And we had met him before at Donovan's house. He was a friend of Donovan's. And it was just lovely to be with him. He'd had a heart attack and he was not well. But Robert persuaded him to play his banjo, which was beautiful. And he said that he would play his banjo if I would sing a song. So I did. <laughs> 
And that's when he said, don't hide your light. And it really made an impression on me, especially when on our way back from that tour was when we met Joe Boyd and I sang him some songs and he wanted to make an album. And of course, the train ride back, you wrote Diamond Day. Yes, on, on the train ride back from Holland through Belgium, I was looking out the window and there were these beautiful horses plowing great straight plows and there were farmhouses with neat haystacks by the side of them. And it was all so beautiful and so simple. And I just wanted life to be like that. I wrote Diamond Day on that train journey. I just wanted everything to be innocent and simple again. And I, I sang that to Joe Boyd. That's a total crushing defeat for me to realize that Diamond Day wasn't actually how you felt. It's how you so badly wanted things to feel, but you maybe yeah. knew that they'd never quite feel this way. You know, I don't think I did think that. I think Is I thought it? they okay. would be. I think I thought they could be. They could be. And when I sing that song live now, I think, you know, that at that time, I thought how simple things could be, but I don't think that anymore. Yeah. But then I, I really genuinely did think that that was what I was trying to do with this journey and with trying to get to Scotland and to Donovan's place to start a new life. I thought that's what I could do there, to have something really straightforward and simple. And then the most amazing thing, my favorite part of this story, is that you were so very much, at least in my eyes, the real deal, that this thing about Sky, you know, all these, you know, hippie, maybe not pretenders, but you are seriously the real deal. So compared to you, these are, you know, weekend hippies. They all drove out there. They had moved on. They had already moved away from Sky. So they probably thought that you gave up on the journey the next day, but you'd been traveling for a year and a half. Yeah. Some of them are still there. Oh, really? Um, okay. Yeah, but mostly they had gone. But what had happened was that the people who were still there had taken up the empty cottages, had taken up the bits of ground. There wasn't a place for us to put best. There wasn't a place for us to put the wagon. There was nowhere for us. And so we had to carry on to the outer islands, and that's where we stayed for a while. <laughs> but yes, I think I say in the book that by the time we got there, we were so different to the people that we'd left behind, the friends that we'd left behind, because we had become travelers, we had become self-sufficient. We didn't need them anymore, and it didn't matter. I wasn't upset. I wasn't crushed in any way that this dream we'd been walking towards all those miles didn't exist. It almost seems like you're relieved because, oh, you mean we, we can keep walking? <laughs> yes, exactly. We can keep doing what we've been doing because it's good. <laughs> and then that house. And I mean, I know that there's a serious place in your heart for this house, but the yeah. thought of living in a house where half of it has no roof and it's covered mm -hmm. in mold fills me with and fills my wife with the <laughs> kind of terror that is like fathomless. <laughs> Yeah. And um, why did that not happen to me? You know, I think probably because we've been living outside, we've been living on the road with a, a six foot by three foot wagon with, you know, just big enough for a, a single mattress. We were sharing with two dogs as well by then. <laughs> it just seemed incredible that we had any kind of a roof at all, really. Yeah. And it was an old patched roof. When, you know, oh dear, it was just, yeah. It was a crazy place with an earthen floor and walls with holes in them that the gales rushed through. But it was ours, you know, and that really meant something. We thought it was ours. Of course, it wasn't because right, of right. the crofting law, but... <laughs> 
at the time, we had got to where we wanted to be. And the way you write it, talk about a strange twist of fate. You're trying to live this notion of what you feel like life should be, and uh -huh. everybody around you is desperately trying to catch up with the times. <laughs> yes really and it took us a while to understand that and respect that so the trip is over now so to speak i mean because it's not really over but the trip to sky at least is and joe boyd delivers on his promise to record an album of your traveling songs right at the time you find out that you're pregnant yes all right, that about does it. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to our graphic designer, Todd Zimmer, my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, Vashti Bunyan, the ever-patient Howard Wolfing, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the soldiers of sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator, and much more. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, hey, no sweat. Just email me at info at discograffiti.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the limitless wonders of 1960s hippie living is to go straight to the beginning and listen to Pink Floyd, Episodes 1 and 2, The Monkees, Episodes 22 and 23, The Band, Episodes 25 and 27, The Zombies, Episodes 59 and 60, Sweetwater, Episode 79, and Burt Summer, Episode 83 and 84. But wait just a minute. This is just the entrance to the rabbit hole. Join us as we descend down, down, down on Discograffiti's week-long Wandering Lady of the Canyons deep dive. Of course, if you're a Patreon subscriber, then you already know to keep your ears peeled throughout the week, because this Monday brings the Patreon-only wildcard episode, The Vashti Bunyan Bonus Show, in which we extended our chat and created an entirely separate episode a couple days later, because it was so much fun the first time around. Around. Not to mention Wednesday's incredible Patreon-only episode of Discograffiti's The Private Press, Alicia May's Skinny Dipping in the Flowers, who if you squint is like a bizarro world Vashti Bunyan if Vashti had hung around and kept recording into the 1970s. Make sure you visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and check out the deep dive as a music obsessive's way of life. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars because next Friday, July 14th, we're coming at you with part two of Vashti Bunyan, in which the soft-spoken fairy godmother of freak folk takes voracious glee in rating the entirety of her catalog. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discograffiti! Discograffiti!